Welcome to the Think Orange podcast, where we want to encourage and equip leaders like you who are investing in the faith and the future of the next generation. I'm your host, Crystal, and in this season of the podcast, we're talking about what it means to be more human and lead humans in attention. And we are so excited for you to listen to this message from Orange Conference by Dr. Josh Packard about what's changing in youth culture. Dr. Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide Research, is an accomplished researcher with an expertise in sociology of religion and new forms of religious expression. Talented speaker and writer with over 10 years of teaching experience, Josh has been a guest on numerous radio shows and podcasts and has been invited to many conferences, events, and workshops. He's been published widely in both academic and popular outlets, including Christianity Today, the Aspen Institute, the Huffington Post, Desert News, and Christian Science Monitor, among others. We can't wait for you to get to learn from Josh, so let's dive in. And the, and the reality is we're going to talk about some research today. I'm the executive director of Springtide Research Institute. Um, we're going to talk about what's changing in youth culture, but everything that we're going to do is we're going to talk about it from some data. But we're going to try and talk about this in a way that uh, is, is not, I don't know, just boring? We're going to talk about boring data. How about that? We'll make a deal. If it starts to get real boring, you stand up on mass and just walk out the back, and then I'll know. That'll be the signal. Okay, so what is Springtide, though? We've been, uh, we're relatively new, um, and so it's worth spending just a few minutes thinking about uh, what, what Springtide is, introducing ourselves, letting you know what we're trying to do. We're a national research firm, and you see our mission up there. We believe that no young person should have to navigate life's most important questions alone. And so we conduct actionable research to reflect the inner and outer lives of 13 to 25-year-olds in order to help those who care about young people care better. That's you. You're in this room, you care about young people. There's some other really important things that are embedded in that. So 13 to 25-year-old, for all intents and purposes, that's Gen Z. You're going to hear me talk a lot about Gen Z today. But we will always stay there. Springtide is entering just into our third year, but we will always be focused on 13 to 25-year-olds, even as Gen Z gets older and we get Gen Alpha or whatever those people are going to name them at some point down the road. Right? We're right here. We're in this spot. And we're actionable. I was an academic for a long time, and one of the things, I love my academic colleagues, but I got really frustrated about the university because there was just a lot of people talking to other people who couldn't do anything. And I never, like, that was just never what felt like my calling. I always felt like my job was to take research and, and, and translate it out uh, to people who could make an impact with it. And so that's what we do at Springtide. It informs everything that we do, from the questions we ask to the kinds of resources that we put out um, to how we think about you know, young people in general. And we do this in an approach that we call data with heart. All the actual like survey data that we collect is nationally representative. It's weighted for census averages, so we know we're reflecting the entire country. We do a lot of interviews. We have a well-trained research team that, you know, I think our data holds up against anybody's in the country. But then we add this other part, which is that we really, really not only care about young people, but we listen to them in very structured ways. We have a very diverse advisory board, a national advisory board, but those are like adults, right? We also have a, a, an advisory board of young people that we meet with monthly. And a lot of times, our best research ideas come from meeting with them. We meet with them over Zoom. They sign up for this, like... It's a, they're an amazing group of young people. They sign up for these 18-month commitments, and they help us explore all kinds of topics. And a lot of times, we even take data back to them before we write it up or something, and we're like, look, here's what we saw in the data, and here's what we think it means. And they're like, no, old man, that's not what that means. It means this other thing. <laughs> 
And they're incredibly helpful. We have a writer in residence who writes for us uh, over the course of a year. Um, we have a BIPOC research fellow. We have interns. We're consistently, we have our own podcast called The Voices of Young People where you can just hear young folks, not like you need to hear more young folks. This is the wrong audience for that. But you can just hear them talk about their faith and their spirituality and their mental health and all the places where they find meaning and purpose. And that's as important to us as the quantitative and qualitative data, because without those things, we wouldn't know what to make of the data that we got back. And we get back a lot of data. We have the largest current data set in the country about young people's religious lives and what they care about and their spirituality. 30,000 surveys nearly over the last couple of years. We've done over 350 interviews. If you've ever sat and talked to the young person, you know the 350 number is way more impressive than the 28,000 number. <laughs> because that's 350 times that we had to try and get a young person on the phone to talk to us, and, and a bunch of focus groups. All right, so that's the background for everything we're going to talk about today. And we've been learning some things at Springtide. We're going to unfold this presentation over the course of a, like a sentence. But let's start with a particular place that I think we can all agree on. You saw this in the presentation last night, that the stories that we tell ourselves matter. And we're always doing this. This is basic social science, that we are consistently walking around the world trying to fill in the gaps of information in fact, that we have in our heads with narratives. We tell ourselves stories about people. Now, at its worst, we've got a bunch of in-group people telling, our, telling themselves stories about people in their out-group, and that's where a lot of stereotypes come from. And that's actually unfolding in real time. I'm going to show you some data about how that's unfolding with young people and religion specifically. But these stories matter because they begin to inform how we act. And so if we're telling ourselves the wrong stories, we end up acting in ways that are not, it's not that they're wrong, it's just that they're ineffective. And I think that's what we've got a lot of what's going on in the world of religion and youth ministry, especially uh, right now, is that a lot of people with good intentions putting forth their best efforts, but doing so in structures that are not the most efficient and effective that they could be. And we tell ourselves these stories because we often see headlines that look like this. Uh, you know, this is from Gallup. U.S. church membership falls below the majority for the first time. This came out last year. And we see other alarming statistics about what young people do and don't believe in. You can see this downward trend of generations. When we look at the big one that's been floating around a lot recently is this, this data about affiliation, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what you see on this slide at the top is the demographic that you care about most. That's the, uh, the, the light orange there is the youngest group in this cohort. And this is data from the General Social Survey, 18 and up. So roughly 34, 35% of those people identifying with as no religious affiliation in this country, but a trend that's been going on for a while. In fact, when we look at this from our own research from Springtide's just 13 to 25-year-olds, what we see is it's actually 40% of Gen Z. So we don't see any slowing down of this trend. This identification as none is here to stay and probably going to only increase. We camp out in this space a lot at Springtide. We try to really understand wherever young people are asking questions about meaning and religion and purpose and spirituality, if that's happening in churches, that's great. We try to go there and listen. If it's happening online, that's also great, but terrifying, and we try to go there and listen to them and talk about those things in those spaces as well. And there's a lot of nuns then asking a lot of questions that are just like wildly misinformed, as you can imagine, because they're lacking in some of these institutional connections and identities. And so we begin to build a story here about what young people care about based on those pieces of data. 
And that story is largely one that young people don't care about religion. They don't believe in God. They're not interested in the conversation. And that's a reasonable conclusion to come to if all the data you're looking at is that data about affiliation and attendance and giving and those kinds of things, which says down and down and down and down and down. But I don't think that's the right story. As this quote, which is often attributed to Mark Twain, says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I get why it sounds like Mark Twain. There's two ain'ts in it. Like, you would think it is him, but it's not. But the sentiment is true. It's not what you, it isn't what you, don't, I can't even say it. I was a former English major. I can't, this is like pains me, right? It ain't what you don't know for sure that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. We think we know the story about Gen Z because we've been looking at these markers that really were fantastically good indicators for a very long time. For much, like ever since we've been tracking these things, for much of the last 50 years, affiliation was actually a pretty good story, a good indicator, a good proxy for belief. Because you don't actually care about attendance, you care about soul transformation. It's just that attendance was like, how do you measure? You can't like, you know, where's that on your Pew survey? Like, has your soul been transformed? Check yes or no. And so we measure these other things to try and get at that. And those were pretty good proxies for a very long time. I don't think they are anymore. I don't think they are anymore. In fact, when we think about Gen Z, it's useful to keep some basic things in mind. The best way that I know how to explain this is through a story or a metaphor. This is, Gen Z is the most diverse generation that has ever existed anywhere in the history of the world right now, right here. So even thinking about Gen Z as a thing is not really always particularly helpful. And you won't see any data from me that says today that Gen Z is X. Well, that would be, that's weird, right? That's mixing metaphors. That Gen Z is this or Gen Z is that. They are not a thing. They live in the same world. They occupy, you know, a lot of the same social positions, but they have incredibly diverse experiences. I, uh, when I was in graduate school, I had a chance to, uh, one of my cohort mates was getting married. She invited us to her wedding. I think she was being polite and didn't expect that we would come because she's Indian and her wedding was in Calcutta. And she was like, this is just me being friendly, right? I'm going to invite you to come to my wedding. And I was like, Shoma, I'm coming. We are going to your wedding. And she was like, no, you're not. I'm 100% going to go to your... How often in my life am I going to get a chance to go to a traditional Indian wedding in Calcutta, like put it on the credit card, book the flight? I mean, it's grad school. We had no money, right? Like we were going to this thing. And when we were... When she finally like wrapped her head around the idea that we were going to show up at her family's wedding, she, um, she was like, okay, look, you can have our driver for the week. Like that's... That's very nice of you, but you don't, have, you don't have to do that. We'll be fine. Like, I have also lived in a city. I'm from Dallas. <laughs> so surely I know how to get around another city, Calcutta. Has anybody been to India or Calcutta in particular? None of what I knew about how to navigate Dallas was useful at all for trying to get around <laughs> Calcutta. It was a nightmare, right? It was a nightmare. But this is what we do. This is how our brain works. There's lots of cognitive psychology to tell us that when we're trying to understand something new, we don't actually look to the facts of that situation. It's too complicated. It puts our brains on overload. And so what we do when we're trying to understand something new 
is that we actually reach back to the thing that we've experienced before that is most like the thing we think we're about to encounter or the thing that we are currently encountering. This works brilliantly in lots of ways. This is not a flaw in your, in your, uh, in your neural pathways. This is actually a feature. This is one of the things that has allowed humans to make really quick decisions uh, pretty accurately. But when those things are so disparate, it ends up becoming a real hindrance. Right? So I reached back to my experience of growing up in Dallas, like cities and cars and all that, and tried to apply it to understand how to navigate Calcutta, which was not even remotely the same thing. And those of you who are very close to your teenage years probably suspect how like, wholly unuseful that is when adults try to tell you, like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was in high school, too, and I ran track. And you're like, what is wrong? To this day, my 70-some-year-old mother will be like, yeah, I was a high jumper in high school. I'm like, it was northern Minnesota. It was 60 years ago or something. And there were 27 people in your high school. That is in no way relevant to my 12-year-old son who's trying to make the track team right now. Not relevant. But it's the only thing that, it's like the closest thing that she has, right? When you experience, though, a sea change in the world, those heuristics just become, those models just become completely useless. The amount of diversity that's been introduced into the world over the last 10, 15, 20 years demographically in this country means that if you're even 10 years or 15 years away from your teenage years and you're trying to understand a teenager, your own teenage experiences are not likely to be super useful. They're not likely to be super useful. In terms of your exact, now, in terms of how to relate to them, in terms of how to ask the right questions, find out what they care about, Really useful. We can do this as, a, as a, just a real quick exercise because I think we get this, like we, we both understand this about teenagers all the time and we misunderstand it in wild ways. So just real quick, I want you to put yourself, this might be triggering for some of you, very traumatic, but if you can hang with me, I want you to put yourself back into your middle school shoes. You don't have to go all the way back to the lunchroom if that's the place where like most of the trauma happened, but just like in your room in middle school, think about the song that you were listening to? What was your favorite song in seventh grade? Somebody tell me. What was it? Eminem, all right, yeah. So you were a big fan of the Super Bowl halftime show. You were the one. American Idiot by Green Day. Wonderwall by Oasis. All the small things. Millie Vanilli? There we go. Now, just by show of hands, you were just thinking about your favorite song in seventh grade. By show of hands, is it still your favorite song? <laughs> we got one. What was it? Green Day. Green Day. OK. One person in this audience. And if I asked you a series of other questions, like maybe even your favorite food, my son's favorite drink is every flavor soda, which is, I think, disgusting, but then you start to see like actual like Coke make these kinds of flavors. Um, you think about even who, if you're married, you're probably not married to the person that you were dating at 15 or 16 or 17. I was a professor for a long time. I knew the students coming into my classrooms in their first year of college were probably not majoring in what they were going to major in by the time they graduated college. Like, how many times did that switch, right? And yet, and yet, when it comes, so we understand, like, we understand this about teenagers. It's about change. Their life is in flux. It's about exploration. But especially the further away we get from teenagers, so I'm like, not talking to you people, but like your bosses, 
It's like we forget that for a moment when it comes to their faith lives. And as soon as they express something at 13 or 14 or 15, especially if it's not in line with what we want them to be thinking or believing or feeling, we get like super nervous and we think, oh my goodness, we have to correct this immediately and probably by screaming as loud as we can what we know to be true at them. It's like we forget that their whole life is exploration and change. I think we would do really well to keep that in mind. That might not have been our map when we were growing up, our experience, but their worlds are full of diverse and multiple streams of information coming at them all the time. This is a longer process. Everything about their lives has been elongated in terms of their development. So I think we're really telling ourselves the wrong story about religion and young people. I think the data confirm this. This is not just my own opinion. And years ago, Nancy Ammerman, uh, a really great sociologist at, uh, out of Boston University, she wrote this in a book called Sacred Stories and Spiritual Tribes. She said, in a time of significant change, we cannot assume that we will find religion in the predictable places or in the predictable forms. And if we do not find as much of it in those places as we did before, we cannot assume that it is disappearing. And I was lucky enough to go and hear a talk that she gave, and she followed that up by saying, we're only just now coming to terms with the fact that more and more religion happens outside of traditional institutions. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of the work that we do at Springtide is not news to anybody sitting in this audience. Instead, after one talk that I gave, a youth minister stood up, and, and she said, this isn't new to me, and she's holding up our report. We do the state of religion and young people every year, and she's holding it up. It's like, but it's really vital because this is the ammunition that I need to take back to my boss so I can do the work that I know really matters. Because she knew this, that more and more kids were having these conversations outside of traditional institutions. And it's wild what they're doing with them. Because if you, like, in some ways, you, it's like really hard to convince people that kids are having conversations, that teenagers are having conversations about God and religion. Because if you met a teenager, they seem incapable often of talking to each other even. Like, isn't that weird? And yet, at the same time, like, if you ask a 16-year-old what's going on in Ukraine, I guarantee you they're going to give you a better answer than I would have given at 16. And they live in this very weird world where, in person, they're growing up slower than ever. And online, they're growing up faster than any generation has ever grown up. And they're splitting their time between these two realities. So if you talk to like, an employer about what they want from you know, a teenager working a shift at a fast food restaurant, like, can they please just make eye contact? Like, can they show up? And yet, if you listen to, like, you know, the, I, was, I was in the breakout session with Kara Powell and from Orange, and, and we are from uh, Fuller, and we love all the work that they do. It's amazing. And she was talking about how energized she gets by how, like, activist-oriented and engaged this generation? Like, how can those two things be true? Like, how can you simultaneously not be able to make eye contact or have a conversation and also care deeply about, like, gun reform? It's because this. They're growing up faster than ever and slower than ever at the same time in different settings. It's wild. But it's less to do with sort of, like, there's, there's a there's certainly an online component of that, but also when we start telling ourselves these stories about young people, it's important to remember, like, they are age-specific. Writing about millennials a few years ago, this uh, Elspeth Reeve in The Wire wrote this really great um, article, and in it he said, you know, because this is the, the claim that millennials are narcissists. That was a big, like, put down about millennials, many of you. Right? That, was the, that was the big argument. He said, basically, it's not that people born after 1980 are narcissists, it's that young people are narcissists. And they get over themselves as they get older. 
It's like doing a study of toddlers and declaring that those born since 2010 are generation sociopath. <laughs> Kids these days will pull your hair and pee on the walls and throw their bowls of cereal without even thinking of the consequences. Now, at that point, he's talking about Gen Z, but, it's, but he's not talking about Gen Z, right? He's just talking about what it means to be a toddler versus a teenager. And this is largely true, right? We could say the same thing about like, the greatest generation. My, my grandparents belong to it. And if we were talking about the greatest generation, we'd be like, they can't even make it through the day without napping. How great could they be? That's not because of their generation. It's because they're old. This exploration, these things that we see from teenagers, this curiosity, it's because they're teenagers. Our choice isn't about whether or not the exploration is going to happen. It's about whether we're going to be there for that conversation or if we're going to shut it down. That's the only choice you have. Are you going to be there when they're having the conversation or are you going to shut it down? That's it. Because what we actually see in the data, this is Springtide's data, is that like three-fourths of young people identify themselves as religious or spiritual or both. That's an incredibly high number. In other words, the vast majority of, these, uh, of Gen Z is open to the conversation. They're on your playing field, so to speak. That's a tremendously high number. So if we're not in the middle of a belief crisis yet, by the way, yet, could still be coming, what are we experiencing? Because we know something is happening. You've felt it. Like, this is not the same. If you've been doing his ministry for even 10 years, 15 years, you know that it's not the same. What we're living through right now is actually a trust revolution. And here's the thing. We haven't just started it. We've been living through it for the last 50 years. If we look at data going back from Gallup and Pew, what we find is this ongoing decline of institutional trust. I just picked one study here. This is from the 70s. This is Gallup's data to today. I made you a cheat sheet there with the arrow if you couldn't figure out the trend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And I know what you're thinking. Like, I know, given the room that we're in, I, they, like, your eyes immediately go, and you wonder, like, how is it that Congress is still so high at 11%? I understand. No, you go to the bottom, right? You go to organized religion, and you're like, oh, we've fallen from 65 to 36, but that isn't the thing that matters about this slide. If organized religion had dropped off while everybody else had remained strong, I wouldn't be up here talking about this. In fact, you shouldn't even listen to me talk about that if that was the thing. You should be listening to church experts talk about this. We are sociologists, and what this tells us is that there's something going on in the world that is beyond your control. You didn't cause this. You can't fix it. You're not going to do anything that is going to make a dent in this ongoing trend towards a decline of institutional trust. And that can be a tough thing to sit with for a second. And I'm not saying that you can't get young people to trust you, because as we're going to see, they very much trust you. It's the this notion uh, that we can leverage our institutional trust to engage young people, though, that is out the window. Every time we're going to do that, what we're going to find is that it's going to be harder and harder to get the same results that we used to get for years and years. This is all about relationships now. When we ask young people, this is Springtide's research, just 13 to 25-year-olds, we asked in a little bit more age-appropriate way so that all the way down to 13, 14-year-olds could do this a little bit more easily. The, we asked them just to rank 
you know, these, these various institutions in terms of how much they trusted them. And you see nonprofits there at the top, banks, public schools, organized religion, but it's a 10-point scale. So nobody's doing particularly well, even with this exact demographic. And then we thought to ourselves, like, okay, that's all young people, but like, how do explicitly affiliated young people, in other words, when we ask the question, are you, you know, check which box most applies to you, Christian, Catholic, Christian, Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, et cetera, you know, just like Pew does all the way down in those last boxes that say atheist, agnostic, and none. These are all the kids who don't check those last three boxes. They're identifying as something. But it's a much more complicated story than what it used to be. Half of young people who are affiliated so that they don't trust organized religion. How wild is that? Like they're willing to check the box and they're saying, but I don't trust organized religion. And on and on. And these, the, the data points get to be uh, more and more, I would say, almost confusing. 33% of affiliated young people go to religious services once a year or less. Over one in five, you see, that, you see that statistic at the bottom. They don't try to include religion in their daily lives, but they're checking the boxes affiliated. And when we look at the unaffiliated numbers, we see the same thing. Just lots of 60% of unaffiliated young people saying that they're at least slightly spiritual. 28% of unaffiliated young people saying they're trying to live out their faith in their, in their daily lives. 38% say they are religious. Now, you might look at this and be like, this is a mess. Kids don't even know what they want. If you hadn't seen that trust data first, because what we're telling here in this is not a belief story. What you're seeing in these data is a trust story. And not just trust, but an institutional trust story. This is about kids not necessarily wanting to align or identify who they are with a religious identity, or especially an institutional religious identity. But they want to be free to ask the questions. Now, unfortunately, I think in really dramatic and, and important ways, this trust revolution has led to a belonging crisis. So that's the change that's happened, is this decline of trust. Well, the impact has been felt in young people's belonging in some really heartbreaking ways. Not by design, not intentionally. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just this is the accumulated years of increasingly, like, small disconnections between parents taking their kids to church, or then, church, you know, kids, like, growing up in church, but then rejecting it, peers not supporting it, et cetera, et cetera. And so what happens? Well, not just in religious institutions, but across all institutions, we just don't have those connections that used to be sort of built into the structure of society. And the result is something that I think is sort of shocking. In fact, we, we, we had to go back and make sure that we were reading our own data correctly and then look to see and make sure that other places were finding the same thing. And Gen Z, it turns out, is the loneliest generation. Cigna did a, so I'll bring back up and say, there's a scale of loneliness, because we make scales for everything as academics, that has been used by researchers out of UCLA since the late 1970s. It's been used by loads of people across the country in lots of different settings and studies, some national, some very local. And Cigna did this big study in 2018, right before the pandemic, um, because they were interested in the health consequences of loneliness and isolation. And every single time between the late 1970s all the way up to 2018, when we measure loneliness and we look at age cohorts, it's the oldest generation that's the loneliest. You can probably guess why. And when Cigna did their study for the very first time, it was the youngest generation that's the loneliest. And not only that, 
but their scores were off the charts, higher than had ever been measured. And it's super counterintuitive, right? Because when we think about kids in Gen Z, most people think like what? Right here, on their phones, connected to everybody in the whole world just by pulling a device out of their pocket. Even that's a misnomer. They don't have to pick it out of their pocket. They're holding it already all the time. But it's true. We saw it. We did, our, we did a whole study called Belonging, Reconnecting America's Loneliest Generation, just to dig into this. And we saw it time and time again in lots and lots of really surprising ways. And this notion that like, attendance can somehow like, solve this problem, we found just to not actually be true. So in the light green bar here, what you see is the total sample of young people. And in the dark green bar, this is all the young people who attend religious gatherings. And we asked them some of these questions from the trust scales. And you see that they're all the same. They're within the margin of error on every measure. Attendance, institutional connection, does not solve belonging. And it's true, by the way, when, I mean, this is just the religious data because this is a religious audience, but like, we also asked the same thing about um, team, sports teams that they would participate in. We asked the same thing about after-school clubs and civic organizations and whatever, all the kinds of things they were doing. And we cross-tab, you know, you put one here and you put one here and you see where the, you know, where, where the intersection is. And we found out that attendance anywhere doesn't automatically indicate that they feel that that is a place that is for them. Which is, I think, just a dramatic change, even from when I was a kid. If I showed up somewhere when I was a kid, it's because I felt like I belonged there. And if I showed up there enough, even if I didn't feel like I belonged at first, like, eventually it would happen. But those two things are just not even, like, they are felt as separate realities. Belonging and attendance are just felt as separate things for kids. And this has very real implications, this belonging crisis. Not only does it have very real sort of mental and physical health implications, Cigna said, it's, uh, there's some studies following up from Cigna said that it's the same intense uh, belong, uh, loneliness rather, is the same as smoking like 15 cigarettes a day in terms of your physical health outcomes. But it has real spiritual consequences as well. Varun Soni, who's the Dean of Religious Life at USC, he wrote this op-ed in the LA Times a few years ago. And he said, whereas students used, <laughs> used to ask, how should I live? They are now more likely to ask, why should I live? Where they used to ask, where they used to talk about hope, and meaning, now they grapple with hopelessness and meaninglessness. I never got the question in my first five years at USC that I now get almost daily from students, how do I make friends? Isn't that wild, y'all? On a college campus in Los Angeles? Like, these are not, they're not cooped up in their dorms because of the weather. This is not Duluth. Students may have thousands of friends online, but few in real life. They may be experts at talking with their thumbs, but not so much with their tongues. As a result, many feel, and this is the critical part, many feel as though they don't have a tribe or a sense of belonging. They feel disconnected from what it means to be human. When I was a professor, I ran a research lab, and I only knew to even start beginning to explore these questions because we had uh, the group of campus ministers all got together and they came to my research lab and they said, we put together a little bit of money. Can, you all, can we commission a survey for you about the religious and spiritual lives of young people on our campus so we know how to serve them better? I was like, sure. We used that, that lab as a teaching hospital, sort of. So you know, all the students would be there. I would walk them through how to create a survey and do all this kind of stuff um, behind the scenes. And I remember uh, we, one of the questions that the, they, the campus ministers wanted to ask was, how many meaningful interactions do you have on a daily basis? And I was telling my students, okay, so the, you know, these, these answers need to be mutually exclusive. So we go from like, 
you know, zero to four and then five to nine. Um, we don't overlap at all. Basic stuff. And my students are like, great, we got all that. But the first category has to be zero. And then the second category needs to be one. And then we can start chunking them up after that. I was like, there's no way that on our residential campus that there's a significant group of young people running around with zero or one or two meaningful interactions on a daily basis. And they're like, oh, yes, there are. I said, if any of those, if any of those numbers end up in the top three of our responses, I will buy you all Starbucks. So then I was out $85 <laughs> for like four lattes or whatever. Because the most common answers were one and two. And zero was in the top five. And what my students explained to me was that they had a whole bunch of, like, they, they knew of lots of people who would stay in their dorm rooms, they would go to class with their, air, with their AirPods in, and they would, they would be in class all day. When class let out, they would immediately go to the dining hall, they would get their lunch or their dinner to go, they'd take it back to their room with their headphones in, and that was their life. It was wild to me. Again, my own map as a college student, which at that point was only 15 years previous, was utterly useless for, how, for understanding what these young people were dealing with. And the spiritual implications here are significant. So in this, in this slide, what you see here is this question that we asked. When you felt overwhelmed and didn't know what to do about something, who did you turn to for help? And we have young people saying at about the same rate as no one, they're saying that they turn to somebody from their religious or spiritual community, 16% of them. And the top answer is friends, which is terrifying. <laughs> but I don't think there's anything we can do about that. The blind are going to lead the blind for a little while. Anyway, uh, they could pick more than one answer. They could have picked all of them, so there's nothing precluding them from picking their faith community in addition to their friends. But it's that we're not very good, and it's not because you aren't very good, because I've never met a youth worker who isn't working hard enough or isn't trying enough. We don't have a deficit of care. We don't have a deficit of intention. We just don't have structures that are very good at facilitating this kind of work. It goes both ways. If anyone outside your home has reached out to you personally, it's not just that young people are not inclined to reach out to their faith communities, it's the other way too. We asked this question just about the pandemic. In the first year of the pandemic, has anyone reached out to you personally? And only 10% of young people said that someone, a faith leader, had reached out to them in the first year of the pandemic. Only 10%. So I think we can all agree, like, that's probably not good enough. But can you also, can you agree with me to hold that, that feeling of that's not good enough and also remember what I said one slide earlier, which is I don't think this is your fault. We don't have a deficit of care. We just don't have models that do a very good job at facilitating relationships at scale. We don't have models that are good at facilitating relationships at scale. We have models that most of us are operating that were built for a high-trust world that existed 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the reason why they're getting, you're getting less and less, it's not like you're, getting, you're not getting nothing out of them. It's not that they're broken. It's not like they don't work. It's just harder and harder to get the same thing or even close to the same kind of production out of them that we used to get because we don't live in that high-trust world anymore. Those models were built around, like, people trust institutions, we're a big institution, so let's get everybody to the institution or, like, leverage our authority or leverage our institutional connections in some way. And that'll attract people, you know, or at least make them feel comfortable, or at least make them trust us. 
But in this low trust world, the more that we lean back into our institutional connections and affiliations, we just go backwards and backwards and backwards. That's a really tough pill to swallow. It was hard for me to swallow as a professor. Like, I knew that my students would listen to me because I had their grades at stake. But that's not what I wanted. You know, like, I, I really wanted at least some of them. I knew not every one of them. I wanted some of them to get excited about sociology, and I wanted them to know that I cared about them. But it wasn't until I, like, did away with all of those things that we started to be able to make those connections. The more I stood up in the front of the room and was like, I'm professor so-and-so with this PhD, and, you know, uh, you better do what I say, and here's the syllabus, and the syllabus is a contract, and you can't break it, and on and on and on. Like, you could just, you could, like, feel them tuning out. Some of you are not too far away from college, and I think I just gave you, like, you know, some bad memories there. The more we lean, and I want, believe me, the world would be a better place for me if I could have just been like, I'm Dr. Packard, I have a PhD, please take notes while I talk. That's easier for me. But we kid ourselves if we think that it's effective. We get to go home at night, maybe, and we sleep well, because we're like, I said the thing that needed to be said. I spoke truth into a place where there was a deficit of truth. What more can I do? And you can go to bed and feel good. But we know it doesn't work. When we've got mountains, I mean, in my field of education, we know it doesn't work. We've got mounds of data to tell us that that's not particularly effective. And we're just fooling ourselves so we can sleep better at night. The scarier thing to do by far is to let the students lead. Let the students lead the inquiry, to let them pace their own learning, because that requires a lot more from us, things that I wasn't particularly trained to do as a professor. But we know it's more effective. We know it's more effective in the long run because we've seen the data, but I, don't, I never, when I switched over to teaching that way, I never got to go to bed and sleep well at night. Every, in fact, every night when I put my head on the pillow, I was like, did we do anything today? Like, did we make any progress at all? It requires a lot more faith and a lot more trust. Now, academia is hard that way. It should be easier for you all because we don't have the Holy Spirit. You do. You don't have to do everything. It's built right into your belief system. You can only do so much. You're only asked to do so much. I don't think it's going to help you sleep better at night. You're still probably going to put your head on the pillow and wonder, did we do anything today? And it's going to feel like you're not doing anything if you're not up here saying, like, I spoke truth into that young person's life at a moment when they were expressing doubt. But we know, too, that that doesn't work either. That listening is far more powerful, especially early on, than talking. This trust revolution, which has led to a belonging crisis that has very real spiritual implications, can only be solved through relationship. That's it. There is not a pathway forward to systematically solving this trust crisis, to systematically dealing with all these belonging issues that isn't based in relationships. This is not my opinion. We have loads of data about it. We wrote, in the State of Religion and Young People for 2020, we put forth this model called relational authority. And I'm going to get just a little bit nerdy with you for a second. I know some of you are like, more nerdy is what you mean? Yes, more nerdy is what I mean. Once upon a time, pre-industrial revolution, when we all lived in farms, sociologists call this solidarity that emerged from this, this solidarity, well, they didn't call it this, I'm, they call it mechanical solidarity, but we won't go there. It's this solidarity of sameness. We, we trusted each other, we were 
a community because we were all basically experiencing the same thing. The, the weather that made it difficult for you to grow crops, that was the same thing that made it difficult for me. We were sharing reality together. Post-industrial revolution, though, that is no longer the case. This is the world most of us have been living in. People move to cities, jobs get differentiated. Who knows, does anybody here know what all of, raise your hand if you know what all of your neighbors do for a living. Isn't that wild? Like we came out of a world where like we intimately knew everybody's realities to this world that we live in now where very few of us even know the realities of the people who live closest to us physically. And in this new reality, authority is not granted based on sort of tradition or ritual. This new reality, the solidarity of difference, authority is granted to you by credentials. Like I don't actually know if my dentist is a good dentist. I just know that somebody else said my dentist is a good dentist. Because maybe more than any other profession, they line their walls. I don't know if they're, they're compensating for something, but it's like nothing but diplomas, right? Because they're trying to tell you, look, the weight, the authority of all these other institutions have credentialed me to be able to do this work. And that's mostly the world that we have built. When I say we have systems built for a high trust environment, that's the system for a high trust environment. A low trust environment in the world of dentistry would be like me standing there and being like, you work on their teeth and I'm going to watch you and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> right? But that's not an invitation that I get. Like that's not on the table. And in ministry, we've done a lot of the same things. Like we've gone and gotten credentials. We've said like, oh, this church is this size and we've been around for this many years and we have this many kids and like, look at all my degrees too. And therefore, like, I have some ability to speak into your life. And again, that was a really good system for a world that operates in high institutional trust. In the low institutional trust world though, I'm not sure that there's many 15 or 16 year olds running around the world who care about that. And in fact, what we've seen is that it can actually be a turnoff. When we asked young people what really does inspire trust in them, they said relationships, but that's not good enough because that's dumb. Relationships is way too vague. Like, what does that mean? You want somebody to just hang out? You want somebody to just like be your friend and tell you that every bad decision you're making is awesome? That can't be okay. We were stunned when we really dug into this. What they told us is this model of relational authority that they were looking for is yes, listening, transparency, integrity, care. These are like the hallmarks of what they consider to be the sort of like the friend part. But they told us really critically, if that's all you do, if all you're doing is listening, integrity, transparency, and care, then you're really just like a fun uncle. And what they were very clear about was like, we do not need adults to be our friends. We have enough friends. And they're often the cause of as much drama <laughs> as anything else in our lives. I don't want to think that adults are going to contribute to that. They wanted the expertise too. And really interestingly to me, uh, the expertise that they wanted came in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it was a PhD. They would take that as a source of expertise. Sometimes it was about having done a job for a very long time. Sometimes it was about having kids their same age or some other lived experiences. Oh, you grew up, you were also adopted, I was adopted. You were the only black kid in your school, I'm the only black kid in my school. These identity and experience types of expertise matter as much, if not more, than these accrued credentials. Now, if you only do the expertise part and you don't do the listening, integrity, transparency, and care part, they're never hearing it. They're never hearing it. Now, it's not because they're stupid. It's because 
you know, even when you give them really good advice from an expertise point without doing the critical relationship part first, it, like they recognize it as really good advice. But what they tell us is that they think you're giving them that advice on behalf of the institution. That you have the church's best interests in mind, not their best interests in mind. So they don't think they can trust it. Because they don't know if they're all in on this whole church thing. They're unsure. So as mu- I, believe me, I've sat there. I sat across the desk from young people like, telling me like, you know, the really terrible choices that they're going to make. Like, I think I might take a year off between this semester and next semester. And I'm like, you should not do that. You are not the kind of student who's going to be able to come back from that. Chances are. But I know that I can't say that in that moment if I haven't already put forth a semester or two or three or four of every time they come into my office and me saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And writing it down and asking them follow-up questions and getting to know them a little bit so I understand their story and hear them, not hearing them to respond to them, but just hearing them. So that when the moment comes that they tell me the really dumb thing that they want to do, I can then say, that sounds stupid. (laughs) And they would listen. But man, I learned some rough lessons when I was first starting out. I didn't know any different truth about what was best for them. It was the same truth. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that a first-generation student who's barely hanging on with C's and is having to work 50 hours a week is probably not coming back if they take a year off. I knew that my first year teaching. I knew that my last year teaching. But I didn't know to listen first, and so when I said it those first few years, it never made a difference. I don't think I stopped one student from doing one dumb thing. And by the end, I think I got pretty good at it. I didn't learn anything, but I learned more about them. And that data, that experience that I had is played out by the data. When we look at trust levels for institutions, they're incredibly low, as I mentioned. Uh, But when we look at trust levels for relationships, they're off the charts into the 90th percentile, especially if you're doing relationships. We don't have time to break down listening, transparency, integrity, care, and expertise. If you want to know more about those components, you can, um, the state of religion in young people is free. I'm not, this is not me selling anything. You can go and get it on our website, springtideresearch.org, and learn more about exactly what listening means to a young person, what transparency looks like to a young person, etc. But these things are massive. Now, the trick then is like, okay, I think a lot of you in this room are probably asking a question, which is one you probably should be asking, which is like, all right, you're telling us to move away from institutions means probably not doing some of the programming stuff that I'm doing. You want us to do more relationships. How do we do that at scale? I'm one person. What am I going to do? Like, I'm going to have relations. I'm going to have have deep, intimate knowledge of 150 students or something or more. Like, that's bananas. It is bananas. You're not going to do that. We do have to be as innovative about relational ministry moving forward as we have been about program-driven ministry for the last 50 years. It's going to take some time. We're going to try a bunch of stuff that doesn't super work. But we need to move confidently in that direction. Last summer, we put out this simple belongingness challenge at Springtide. We, we made up a curriculum um, with really fancy tools. It's called a spreadsheet. <laughs> and we just challenged people to list all the young people that they work with on a different row. And then across the columns, we just ask them to like, let's start with like three or four things you know about that young person and then start tracking every conversation. And this teacher came up to me last week. I was at the National Catholic Educators Association meeting and she came up to me after my presentation and she said, I did it. I had 130 students 
I wrote them all, I wrote down all their names. And then the one thing I wrote down that I know about them is I wrote down their birthdays and I committed to sending them all a birthday card. Like this is a, this is the simplest little thing, right? She's like, it completely changed the dynamic of my classroom. Students started holding me accountable. Like if the mail was late and they didn't get their card. And she's like, I don't have any control over that. And then I started taking it one step further. I had them do the journal entries every week. And every once in a while, they would write something particularly interesting. And I would, I would put that in the next row next to their name. And by the end of the semester, I had this like long string of things that I knew about these kids. And what changed, she said that they went from being like, you know, abstract sort of like preteens that I cared about to real human beings in the flesh so that we weren't just having conversations like, how was your day? I was able to ask better questions because I knew things about them. Because I could, I, could, I could target a kid who hadn't been coming to class very often or had seemed particularly checked out. I could go back to my spreadsheet. I could find out what they'd been writing in their journals really quickly, and I could ask them a question about it. And then I would track that answer too. And I would put it in the spreadsheet. She's like, also, by the way, it got a whole lot easier to write letters of recommendation, which is a side bonus, right? Because she had stories to tell about them. And she said it changed everything about her classroom. And we heard, we heard back from like over 20 people who had done this little challenge that we sent out over email telling us the same kinds of things. This is, a, this is a very small example, but that's what I mean by doing relationships at scale. We're not the only field that needs to do it. Look, uh, fundraisers have been doing this for years. They're basically relationship tracking profession. Salespeople have been doing this for years. Now, what you're doing is not as transactional as fundraisers and salespeople. We can learn some things from how they've managed to cultivate relationships times 10, times 50, times 100, and across teams. So multiple people can check in. My wife works at Youth for Christ chapter uh, in our town, and they do this. They do this, and they track these conversations through an app that they built to do it specifically, so that, because they would have kids who were just sort of like wandering in from the neighborhood. And whoever was staffing the building at that point needed to know something about that kid real quickly. And now they serve 10% of every kid in the city walks through their doors at some point during the year. And every one of them, they have tracked and they can say something about them. So if you walk in and you say, hi, I'm Johnny, and what they thought was going to be like a, an impediment, impediment at first or a barrier, where they would have to pull out the app and be like, Johnny, we haven't met. Hold on a second. And they would pull out the app and they'd say, oh, so you're the one, da-da-da, we talked about you, um, you know, in staff meeting a few weeks ago. They thought that was going to feel really artificial, and the kid would be like, what? That's weird. And instead, it made them feel really seen. You're, you're talking about me? You care enough about me to write that down and follow up? Well, that's tremendous. Because you're not going to be able to hold all these relationships. If you're really going to commit to relational ministry, and you know I'm not the only one calling for it. Uh, you know, our research isn't the only one calling for it. Orange is saying the same thing. I have this great book, Lead Small. They're saying the same thing. You know you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. It's going to take you and, 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 and. And we have, to be able to, we have to be able to put this out to a whole group of people. And what Orange says is be present, create a safe place, partner with parents, make it personal, and then move them out. Lead small. But nobody's saying lead small with four kids. It's lead small at scale. It's relationships at scale. It's going to require new tools. But we can do it. You know, I mean, there's nothing particularly biblical about having a pizza party with 100 kids. Like, we can let go of some of this stuff. And lots of you already have. Sometimes we've even let go of them knowing that they weren't particularly working anymore. Like, uh, when I was a kid, I went to lots of lock-ins. And now I've seen youth ministers here wearing shirts that says, like, kill the lock-in. <laughs> makes me die a little bit. Um, 
sometimes you've let go of things without even necessarily knowing what to do in its place. You just know that the thing that you were doing wasn't working. All the data that we have suggests that you need to be putting all those resources back into relationships. Alex told us, the reason I stayed at my church is because of my lead pastor. His sermons were so smart and well-informed. And, oh, nope, that's not what Alex said. No young person has ever said that to us in the whole history of talking to young people. Why does Alex stay? Alex stayed because of her youth pastor. And what is her youth pastor? His youth pastor, rather? Hospitable, loving, forgiving, non-judgmental, and been so gracious. It's not that I don't think sermons matter. I think they really do. But that's an example of doing expertise without the other components of relational authority. So they hear those sermons. It's like, who are you, dude? Who are you? But from you, they'll listen because their trust levels for you are off the charts. Why does this matter? Well, I think we know, you know some of why it matters, but let's think about why this matters, uh, not just from your own personal experience, but why this matters at a structural level. And one of the oldest lessons in my field in sociology is that belonging precedes believing. We get this backwards a lot in the real world in practice, but we have over 150 years of studies in a lot of different places to tell us that if what you really want is a durable sense of belief, of faith, that will survive, say, a pandemic, or going away to college, marrying a spouse who believes something different than you, getting a new job in a different city with people you don't know, then what you really need is a sense of belonging that keeps you connected to that community first. I worked at summer camps when I was a kid. Uh, kid. <laughs> I was a college student. I, I, li- I had, you know, like many of you, I literally led young people to mountaintop experiences. The camp was in the mountains. But I I knew the ones that were going to stick with it. And it's not because of anything I did during that week. It it had more to do with how they showed up on the first day. You know, the ones who came and they were embedded in a community already, you could tell. I was like, everything we do here is going to matter when they go home. And I could tell the ones that I was like, nothing we do here is going to make much of a difference. You know, we we can help them feel seen and heard and loved for a week. But long term, we can't go home with them. The belonging matters first. The believing comes later, because as we've just seen from the beginning, nobody's still listening to Millie Vanilli. Their lives are going to ebb and flow. They need the community to come back with them. Did anybody go and see the interactive Van Gogh exhibit? What do you see? This? this is amazing. It's like unlike any other museum experience that you might have ever had. Normally, when you go into a museum, you see a painting, and what's off to the side? little description. It'll tell you who made this thing and what years that they were alive. Museums and arboretums and these kinds of things, they came about uh, at a roughly the same time as uh, this like structured, organized like notion of youth ministry came around um, to sort of edify, or not youth ministry, but you know, in the loosest sense, it's like religious formation or religious education. And most museums and most of what we do with young people is still largely the same, meaning it's a geared towards this education model. But this is Starry Night from the interactive exhibit. Now, normally, if you were to see Starry Night, it would have that little plaque off to the side that would say when it was painted and what it was painted with and who painted it, which I can't think of a dumber thing to put next to the picture of Starry Night. Because you can learn everything that you need to know about Starry Night 
from your phone, more than they can fit on that plaque. The only thing that's relevant to put next to Starry Night is a quote from somebody saying, like, holy crap. Can you believe what this guy saw? I don't think I'll ever be able to look at the sky the same way again. That's the only relevant thing to put next to Starry Night. I don't need the Latin names for plants when I go to the Arboretum. I need a poem from a kid about how great roses are. These were models built to deal with a deficit of knowledge. We don't operate in a world that has a deficit of knowledge. If you, for just one second, thought to yourself, what if, I'm not saying it's true, but just what if, young people knew everything about God that they wanted to know? How would that change everything that we do in youth ministry? Because the reality, I'm not saying it's true, I'm saying they think it's true, that they know everything about God that they would need to know because they think that they can look it up, like they can go on hashtag witch talk and learn everything that they need to know about witches. It's fair. They can, they can Google the, you know, they can look up the Wikipedia for what Ramadan is, and they can learn things about it. When we ask young people, do you need to know more about God, they consistently are like, no, I don't need to know more about God. It's not that I'm not interested, I just don't need, to, I don't need to know more about God. I don't think they're right. They need to know more about God. But they feel like they know what they need to know. But when we ask people, young people, about their experiences with God, it's a shocking deficit. When we ask them, like, when was the last time you experienced grace? Do you even know what grace is? Is there any place in your life where you have unconditional love? Do you know what happens to you when you die? What is your soul for? Have you ever felt like everything around you was sacred? They say no and no and no. They don't need plaques next to pictures to tell them more about God. They need experiences of the divine. They need experiences of God. And for them, that's only coming through relationships. That's why the belonging matters. When they, talk, when they tell us what's sacred, what is sacred to them is relationships. And we know that this is critical because religion matters to young people. It's not just relationships with anybody, it's relationships with you people. Kids who are uh, religious are flourishing better than all of their other counterparts in all the different aspects of their lives. I generally feel that what I do in my life is valuable and worthwhile. The very religious strongly agree at a significantly higher rate than the not religious. This speaks into their emotional health, their social health, and their mental health. You guys, Josh is one of my favorite people, and we want to thank him for sharing with us how youth culture is changing and how we can innovate to better reach students. If you liked this episode, we would love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcast. We love this review by Gabby. She said, excellent material presented in a clear and engaging way. Thanks for that review, Gabby. And we would love for you to join us at Orange Tour to continue learning what it means to lead humans. Just go to orangetour.org to save your seat for our one-day training event for leaders and volunteers in a city near you. And we'll see you next time on the Think Orange podcast.